back because I, I wanted to be with you. Yeah, well, I saw the way you were dancing with that guy last night. Oh, Kermit. Well, let me tell you something. Your dancing partner happens to be a jewel thief. What do you think of that? You're jealous. I am not. You are. You are, you are, you are, you are. <laughs> oh, Kermit, I'm sorry. Oh, please, please don't go, Kermit, please. Mm. Please don't go. Kermit, please. Oh, please, I'm sorry. Please, please, Piggy, please, Piggy, please, hold please, it. Piggy. Please, please, Piggy, please. you're overacting. What? You're overacting. You're hamming it up. I am not. I am trying to save this movie. Oh, yeah? Well, save your performance instead. I, I am playing 800 different emotions. Well, try to play one of them right. Oh, oh, look, I have a career of my own. I know all about your career, Pete. I don't need this lousy duck pond. Ah, sure you don't need a lousy yeah, duck pond. Okay, you sure, go ahead, walk. Sure. Okay, walk, sure, walk. Oh, go ahead, walk. That was cinema's greatest interspecies couple, Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy, breaking the fourth wall and nearly breaking up in 1981's The Great Muppet Caper. Relationships can sometimes get rough, even if you're made of green felt. We join a couple that are less cartoonish, but just as animated, in one furious late-night argument as we review new Netflix release, Malcolm and Murray. Plus, forget what you think you know. Vampires exist. Again! In this week's What Have You Been Watching? We don't know what we're doing, we're just talking about films, and films are better than people. I'm Sam. And I'm Lawrence. Listen, I'm doing my best. Well, I, I know you are. Uh, Piggy, I, I, I'm sorry. Uh, we gotta get back to the movie, though. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Ah, I'm sorry I left you last night at the nightclub. Uh, well, that's okay, Piggy. Oh, Kermy. Oh, Piggy. So this week, we watched Malcolm and Marie, which you can watch right now on Netflix, and Sam's going to tell you the plot. Malcolm and Marie are a couple who have just come home from the premiere of Malcolm's new film. Malcolm is in jovial mood, as the film he's directed seems to have been well-received. However, within minutes of returning to their lavish abodes, things turn ugly as the mother of all rows erupt and shakes the very foundations of their relationship. Or, as a haiku, an intense couple. Intense hate. Intense in love. Intense mac and cheese. I just felt that the mac and cheese needed a a, a presence, a a prominence in in the description. It is actually very crucial to the film, as um, we might go into a bit later. Exactly. It's a a recurring motif. Something that they come back to again and again. So that's why it's featured in my haiku. Here's a clip. You know what, Malcolm? I feel like once you know someone is there for you and once you know they love you, you never actually think of them again. That's not true. It's until you're about to lose someone that you finally pay attention. Is that what this is? What? It's what you're threatening. If I don't apologize, I'm going to lose you? I'm not looking for an apology, Malcolm. Well, what do you want, a screenplay credit? Don't be cruel. No, I'm serious. I know we talk for hours and hours about work. Is it so much of a fucking nuisance that you like compensation? I had a draft of this script before you ever came into my life. It's not about credit, Malcolm. I don't want fucking credit. Well, what is it, Marie? What do you want? There's nothing quite as entertaining as watching a couple fight, is there? What a great idea for a film. 
Yeah, well, I guess it is a great idea for a film in the times of COVID. Because, I mean, I guess this is like a, a creative team that have wanted to make a film, probably two actors who are desperate to get back working. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've obviously decided to make a film which is, is quite COVID-friendly. Well, it's, it's really probably not COVID-friendly. Because if you are a couple and you want to stick on some Netflix and you see two hot, sexy young things in a sexy-looking film and think, oh, this this is just what we need for, like, a date night or something, then this is exactly the wrong thing to put on because then you're going to start arguing in real life. Oh, I can imagine that happening, actually. <laughs> like, someone's just like, oh, yeah, I, I can understand her point of view. Or someone else is just like, uh, yeah. What? No, she's a crazy bitch. Yeah, yeah. What, what uh, she... Why would you call her a bitch? Exactly. Oh, no, 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 this is just like the last time that we did it. Yeah. Yeah, this is just going to provoke more arguments. Yeah, exactly. If you couldn't tell, being slightly sarcastic about the idea of watching an argument being entertaining, as it's, it's not really that entertaining an idea for a film, or certainly wasn't in this case. But what did you think about it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's not entertaining if it's just in one setting. (laughs) I mean, this film was made with limitations, so I have a certain amount of sympathy for that. But yeah, I think watching one argument in one setting over the course of about one hour 40 does not make it very entertaining. I'm not just saying that they would have always failed to have been able to have done that. But yeah, I, I wasn't entertained, and I think after about 30 minutes... Because the, there's there's multiple arguments within yeah. one massive argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they both calm down at certain points, but then the row erupts again. Yeah. And and it sparks fly, as, uh, as you say. But I, I wasn't particularly engaged with this film after 30 minutes. Yeah, I mean, I actually like films like this. You're right, I think there's lots of ways that this could work and I actually like films like this Uh, some people think they work better as plays but I like it I think it's a challenging format you know to have two people in one setting almost completely in real time I I like that it's interesting to see what a film does with those limitations but this just doesn't make good use of that I I don't think it's a complete failure I like the first third I didn't like the next two thirds I was probably into it a bit longer than you were but not much longer. Like I said, it can be interesting to see what uh, a filmmaker or a team kind of does with a film with these limitations. But the challenge with it is that when it's just two people in one space for like 90 to 120 minutes on the screen, that can risk disengagement. And that can happen in a number of ways. And that's kind of exactly what happens here. You just end up really, really disengaged from it. Yeah, I mean, there are ways that they try and get around that. So yeah. it's the rhythm of the editing being one. When the argument starts to intensify, then you get quicker edits. And then when it slows down again and they take a beat and they start to listen to each other a little bit more, then you get longer shots. And, and I think in the first opening 15 or 20 minutes before the title comes up, before Malcolm and Marie, you do get these these longer shots, these shots of harmony, trying to establish that they're in a good place. Yeah. And then suddenly it just all goes wrong and yeah, the the wrong thing is said. But we, we talked about the, the mac and cheese. <laughs> and actually, I think what happens is that the title of the film, Mal- Malcolm and Marie, freeze frames, or not exactly a freeze frame, but it, it goes over the mac and cheese. Yeah, it does, yeah. And I was trying to think about why... Sam Levinson, the director, has decided to do that. Yes. And I kind of think that this film is a lot about apologising. It's about saying... Uh, it's about apologising and it's about saying thank you. And what happens is Marie is making this mac and cheese. And she makes it for him. And I don't think Malcolm ever thanks her for it. 
And so that's why I think <laughs> it's all for reasons. And yeah, I, I kind of I, you kind of get this idea that yeah, even though they have these like elaborate, very dialogue-heavy arguments, speaking in perfect prose, which obviously never happens in in most arguments. Yeah. But yeah, it free frames like that because yeah, it's trying to focus on the basics and the the fundamentals of a of a relationship. I almost found that a little bit of a drawback though, because the problem is, is it feels like a lot of like wasted time it doesn't really feel like engagement and sometimes arguments can be like that but i don't necessarily want to watch that for like an hour and 45 minutes or whatever actually you you're, you're right about the editing and stuff but that's also becomes a problem because this is just back and forth they're ferociously in love then they ferociously hate each other and it's it's just that it's just that back and forth back and forth and the reasons for this just really start to drag on you it's not that they're not valid complaints in a relationship you know, how they someone emotionally supports you or how they don't emotionally support you or how someone helps you in your own success. These are really important things in a real relationship. But honestly, I just, I just can't watch an hour and three quarters of two people talking about this. It's fucking boring. You know, after a while, it starts to become like a real argument with a real couple that you're not involved in. And no one wants to be involved in that. It becomes quite self-indulgent. It's quite self-indulgently written. You know, it's got rants and raves and... and about Helen. two selfish people. About two, yeah. Because actually, <laughs> before the title comes up, there's a song, I'm So Selfish, that plays over their first conversation, which Ooh, is sort of... subtle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very on the nose, but it is indicating, I think, a big problem with their their partnership. I think two people more interested in themselves. Yeah, I could have watched something like this for about 30 minutes, maybe 40 minutes, like I say, up to that kind of one third line. But after that, it just becomes a a real drag these aren't people that I want to hang out with anymore so in an argument like this it's just two people digging into each other's psychology like making the other one out to be a monster and you know what arguments like this do not tell you anything about people and neither does this film I mean this this doesn't penetrate the concept of relationships or love or really like films about love I, I think if your biggest argument is your relationship all over then that is a bad relationship and to be honest a bad relationship is not what relationships are a lot of us go through bad relationships but the bad relationships don't usually tell you what love is and but it could be a film about a breakup but it's not actually a film about a breakup or if or if it is you could interpret it is but it's just too ambiguous whether or not it is so I think if it was a film about a breakup, I think I'd need to see the breakup and then I could say, I understand this now. Because it doesn't come down on that side, it just it just feels like a drag. It feels like something isn't working, something isn't engaging here. But within their limitations, you couldn't make something about a good relationship. This is the thing. I think what what's happened is that they've made this film with two sort of very like beautiful actors. And they're trying to get under the veneer of a relationship that probably on the surface looks looks brilliant because they're both smart and sexy and seem sort of well-educated. But underneath, actually, they've got all sorts of problems that stretch back years and years and years. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think the film is about shame and guilt because Malcolm, again, before the title comes up, he says when he's been at the premiere, the film that he's directed, oh, they, they, they think it's about race. Or you know that's what the the criticism is that the you know it's a, it's a the film that he's made is is political in, in like a few different ways, but actually he says no this film's about shame and guilt, and actually I was wondering okay well is this the director basically telling us that yeah this isn't about anything very complex this yeah. is actually about two people who are strong to deal with these these two very hard emotions 
Yeah, I think it is. I, I think as well, that's also another thing that the, the film's doing. It's trying to talk about other subjects as well. It's not just about this relationship. And it, it does this in the format of, you know, Malcolm's rants. And I think it's interesting because Malcolm is obviously a very flawed person. He's a real egotist and, and, he's, a, and he's a difficult person to be around. So that becomes part of the debate. You are the neediest man I've ever dated, <laughs> is as, that as Marie says to him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, when he starts ranting about a few things about the film industry and about making films, and sometimes through the lens of his, his own kind of film that we never see, because he's such a difficult person, should we be agreeing with him? Or are his ideas the ideas of a narcissist and should we be critiquing them and that's kind of interesting but but some of his ideas i think are really on point i actually liked some of his points of view that 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 he had on stuff i love that thing about authenticity he talks about in the film like how you should be trying to capture the emotions and turn it into something moving rather than insisting that everything should be perfectly as it was when you're making a film i think that's so true you know art is an expression of something that's what you should be aiming for not necessarily photorealism because what does that really mean and i think that the way that black filmmakers are always linked with racial politics and shouldn't always be is is absolutely right as well just because a black filmmaker's black doesn't mean that every film they make is about race you know that's just really reductive and i think some of the things he, he talks about when he when they argue about presenting sexuality in films uh is really true because you know i think putting sex on film too often these days just immediately makes people think it's it's problematic when it's not because you know sex is an aspect that someone's trying to express and sometimes you need to show it in in a sexy way it's not necessarily exploitative even if it is sexy or it involves nudity but then again sometimes it just feels like these rants are just out of place because actually I feel they like can get tedious they can I get think, really tedious as I say he does say some interesting things but also just direct, like the rest direct, of the film actually it can get really tedious directors moaning about the film industry is not something that I'm particularly interested in I think films about the film industry can be tedious for those reasons because we've come for a bit of escapism or we were here for stories we're here for good stories and I think that can be hard to tell if you've got someone that is just, oh, I'm, I'm here to make a film that's going to trash the industry I'm in. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to fight the system from, from within. It's just, it's just not... I mean, I'm sure there are examples of when it's done well, but... Yeah. And, I, and I don't think this really is a film where Sam Levinson wants to take a swipe at the industry. But I think he does want to give it a couple of jabs. Yeah, I think he does. I think, I think this is clear that Sam Levinson has some things to say, or certainly some ideas that he wants to throw into the conversation, right? Yeah. But you know, Sam Levinson, actually, he's worked with Zendaya on a TV show, which I haven't seen, called Euphoria. And it's quite highly acclaimed. I think the, the Zendaya and John David Washington, the two lead performances, are the best thing about this. That they're, 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 they're There actually... are definitely no two better actors in the film. <laughs> I mean, they, they are great. I mean, th- this is, despite, I think, the content, they shine through really well. I mean, this is a challenging thing to do. These are really raw performances that they put out. They have to put themselves in lots of different places emotionally. And it's a great showcase for both of them, who I still consider relatively new to the industry, even though Zendaya has been acting in like Disney Channel stuff since her teens. She wouldn't have said cunt much in those, so I don't really count it in the same ballpark mm. as this. It's great that, you know, they're passionate and they're angry and they're broken and vulnerable. It's really fearless stuff. You know, that rawness is really brilliant. It's just, as we're discussing, it's the actual content. The performances are great, but the content of what they're saying grows really tedious. I think, actually, it's funny that you pulled out some, like, what it was about, because I wasn't really sure what it was about 
because it had lost me by the end. What was their central problem? I mean, I don't really know. It was just such a drain and a drag that by the end that I, I just wasn't sure. And it, like Marie's final speech was supposed to solidify it, but, but because I was like so exhausted by just watching these two people argue, by the end of it, it had stopped being entertaining. That they just I, become like really fragmented. Yeah, I think that's what happens. I think you do see them disintegrate over time and. That is quite sad. I mean, I'll probably say it in my conclusion, but I do kind of agree. I, I'm not sure what it was about either. It, I, I I felt like I misunderstood it quite a lot. And whatever it was about, I just don't think it was warranted a, a, a feature film. Like I say, I would have loved to see this as a short film, but this doesn't work. It's a film that dips its toes in lots of things, but there's no clear voice. And it's a drag. It's a long self-indulgent, difficult drag that's got some really good central performances but honestly just isn't really worth your time. I sort of despair a little bit because it does it does look very sexy and it is quite a sexy film but I slightly despair if, if people see that over the top of what I think is actually quite a, a poorly executed piece. Years and years ago when I, when I first started getting to film actually someone said to me what uh, filmmakers do to make their films more interesting when uh, they haven't got much going on is to make it in black and white. <laughs> they want to make it look a bit more arty, oh, give it God. a bit more substance, and maybe they maybe I they, want, maybe they wanted true. to shoot it in monochrome this this whole time. Maybe that was yeah. always the intention, but maybe when they got to the edit, they were like, let's let's jazz it up a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, in my summary, I've, I've covered a few of these films, but. And I agree with you. I think this feels like it could have been a good short film, but after 30 minutes, it loses a lot of momentum. Um, this is a film about huge arguments, or you know, one huge argument. And a comparison you can make is is in Marriage Story in 2019 with with Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson, and the tension builds and builds throughout the whole film. Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver in that film, they've separated, but they're still on good terms at the start. But then the whole film, it, it builds to a scene about two thirds of the way through where they just have this huge huge row and it's two characters sort of repeatedly insulting and and disrespecting each other but then it just feels like that scene is so more impactful because you've had it build and build and you've been waiting for the film to get there at this point but with Malcolm and Marie they have this huge argument after 30 minutes and then it calms down and then it it builds and builds again it starts again and and it's like a yo-yo it's just jumping back and forth there's no like interesting centre to this to this yo-yoing. It's just them yo-yoing. That's what creates this this crap surface-level stuff. Absolutely. Uh, the film left me a bit confused and unsure if it wanted to say anything about romance and relationships at all. Maybe the fundamentals and basics of love, saying thank you and sorry, are as important as the grand sweeping gestures, possibly. But I was at a bit of a loss. Do you need an hour and 45 minutes to say that? Or I think there's a better way of saying it's the simple things that matter. It was, it's an interesting idea for an experiment. I usually like experiments like this, but didn't really work. You want control, because you can't imagine the reason I'm with you is because I love you. Everything that you've been through, everything, that's what made you you, the girl that I love, the girl that I fuck with. I will dare you. All I wanted tonight was thank you, Malcolm, that is it. You know that I'm thankful. You know that I made a mistake. So why turn it into something more? Because it's about how you see this relationship. Look at me. I'm the last person.
So, if you like this, I think you should watch Closer. It's about four people living in London. There's Jude Law playing Dan, Natalie Portman playing Alice, Clive Owen playing Larry, great name, and Julia Roberts playing Anna. These people form relationships that intertwine and collide in several key high-emotion moments over about four years. These relationships and these moments involve sex, love and jealousy, and as these emotions and people bleed into one another, there are consequences that everyone will have to try to live with. Sona tells me your bloke wrote a book. Any good? Of course. It's about you, isn't it? Some of me. Oh? What did he leave out? The truth. Is he here, your bloke? Yeah, he's over there, talking to your bird. My boyfriend's here. He's here where? I believe you're acquainted. I've never seen him before. No. You've spoken, well, conversed. Corresponded. I wrote to him. On the net, you sent him to the aquarium. I happened to be there. Nice work, Cupid. Closer might not be cool or touch on anything like race or film like Malcolm and Marie does, but if you like the hyper-real, intense emotionality of the way that relationships clash, then Closer might be worth making a date with, or at least a sexy encounter. Ultimately, both films are about the conflicts and the toxicity that can spiral out of two humans in a relationship, the beauty, the passion, and the things that go horribly wrong. Jude Law is a selfish but passionate man. Julia Roberts is self-destructive but powerful and strong-willed. Clive Owen is loving but ruthless. And Natalie Portman is mercurial but perhaps the only person that wants real love. It's double the amount of people and probably a dozen more settings. But at the core of both these films is a minimalism. Trying to reveal something raw and true about relationships by stripping back as much as possible. These characters intermingle over the course of a few years and a highlight of the drama in this is a scene where Clive Owen has a compulsive need to know the exact manner with how Roberts cheated on him. It's a perfect illustration of masculine ego, an obsession with sex that brings out a brutish, misogynistic competition. I have quite a mixed relationship with Closer because on the one hand it's never dull but there is a problem with it. It's a lot about sex and love and the way that human beings clash and fuck each other up with sex and love. And that can tell you something very real about the human experience. But no one in real life speaks like these characters do. I don't want to put any prospective viewers off, but, you know, after a conversation you go back and kind of imagine what you wish you'd actually said. Well, the script is like that. Even though the characters are screwing each other up and making mistakes and clashing... People express their thoughts and feelings in near-perfect clarity, as if they plan the conversations and responses, and that's not very real. But as Malcolm expresses in Malcolm and Marie, we can't capture authenticity, we can only try to capture the emotion and present it in a moving way. Maybe Closer takes this a step too far. But these films have a similar energy, and I think if you enjoyed the drama of Malcolm and Marie, Closer might also tick some of those boxes. Yeah, I have nothing to say on Closer because I haven't seen it. Um, <laughs> but it is uh, directed by Mike Nichols, who's a, yeah, a very well or was a very well respected director. And yeah, it's got a really, a really good cast. But I get the sense that maybe most of the cast have gone on to do better work. Mm, yeah, maybe not Clive Owen. 
<laughs> Always. Clive Owen did make Children of Men after that. Uh, actually, he did. Actually, he did. And actually, he was in this really good thing called The Nick on, on TV. But that's something else. But like, like I said, I have a bit of a mixed relationship with Closer. Because on the one hand, I kind of admire something that is scripted in a really unique, stylized way. But... I, it's a bit at odds with itself when it's like you're trying to show something really, really true, but no one is speaking like a human being. So what's really happening here? It's trying to be something very real, and yet at the same time is is something completely not real. Completely I think silent. yeah, I think I see what you mean, and I think when you watch a film like that, it feels like you're watching it at a distance. Yeah, it doesn't really feel like you're a part of it. I mean, that was one of my complaints about Malcolm and Marie is that I never felt engaged with it, and I really don't think Closer feels like a film that you you ever really settle into. I don't think you'd like it, to be honest. Like I said, I feel a bit mixed about it. I think it's got some really good moments in it. I think if people are interested in a film that explores sex and relationships in quite a candid manner, that I think that Malcolm Marie is trying to do as well, then maybe Closer would interest them. But to be honest, I just think it's dated a bit, a bit badly, so it's not going to tick everyone's box. But it's kind of an interesting piece anyway. If you didn't like this, then Before Sunrise from 1995 is a safe bet for an altogether different experience of a relationship, specifically one that is blossoming rather than disintegrating. The film follows an American Jesse, played by Ethan Hawke, and Celine, who's French, played by Julie Delphi. They meet on a train from Budapest and engage in brief but fulfilling conversation. Jesse and Celine disembark at Vienna, where they fall in love and learn more about each other's intricacies over the course of day and night. Um... I want to keep talking to you, you know? I have no idea what your situation is, but uh, but I feel like we have some kind of uh, connection, right? Yeah, me too. Yeah, right. Well, great. So listen, here's the deal. This is what we should do. You should get off the train with me here in Vienna and come check out the town. What? Come on, it'll be fun. Come on. <laughs> What would we do? Um, I don't know. All I know is I have to catch an Austrian Airlines flight tomorrow morning at 9.30, and I don't really have enough money for a hotel, so I was just going to walk around, and it'd be a lot more fun if you came with me. And if I turn out to be some kind of psycho, you know, you just get on the next train. <laughs> all right, all right. Think of it like this. Um, uh, jump ahead. 10, 20 years, okay? And you're married. And only your marriage doesn't have that same energy that it used to have. You know, you start to blame your husband. You start to think about all those guys you've met in your life and what might have happened if you picked up with one of them. Before Sunrise and Malcolm Marie are different in structure. There are multiple scenes in different parts of Vienna in the former, while in the latter we are fixed to one sleek and sophisticated Hollywood apartment. Both films, however, are focused on two people and what divides as well as what unites them. Of course, it feels like there's more in which unites Jesse and Celine. They've both come out of other romances and are floating through life. Jesse is on his way back to the United States after roaming around Europe, and Celine is a student in Paris searching for identity and a sense of belonging. Films that concentrate on two characters live and die by the charisma between the two actors. The strength of Before Sunrise comes with Hawke and Delphi being incredibly naturalistic, matching the spontaneity and effortlessness of their encounter. An American bachelor meeting a beautiful French woman in a picturesque city can be something out of a romantic fiction, but this film never has you doubting the authenticity between the pair. Malcolm and Marie might investigate how love and hate can be close cousins within a tumultuous partnership, but Before Sunrise showcases the excitement of discovery and adventure when two people connect. I don't want to make Before Sunrise sound like some soppy or twee fairy tale. There is doubt about what will happen to Jesse and Celine as the time they've spent together slowly draws to an end. 
but this is much more uplifting and captivating than Malcolm and Marie. And if you are looking for some reassurance about what happens to Jesse and Celine, there are two sequels to Before Sunrise, making a set of three films one of the most celebrated trilogies of all time. Yeah, after talking about all this drama and this breakup and this fighting and bitterness and stuff, I'm so in the mood for Before Sunrise. I really want to watch it again now, hearing you talking about it. In some ways, it feels like a bit of a juvenile film. Like, when you watch it, it is kind of a fantasy. And That's the cynic in you. In that you is the cynic in me. Because <laughs> I think Jesse's, Jesse's a bit of a cynic in Before Sunrise. Yeah. And I think it, it's kind of established about, like, yeah. Yeah, that he's a bit sort of broken mm. about romance. Uh, but yeah, over the course of the film, he, I guess he, he's kind of, of, yeah, he falls he in love up. all over again. He does, he does. And it's it's just, but it's not twee. We, I keep it's, this it's, is the thing. It's not it's, when describing this film. It's really, it, it's really easy to make it sound twee, and it it's is. not. It's, mu- it's got much more depth than that. It does, but I still think it is a little bit. It, it does feel like a bit of a fantasy. Um, two people from opposite sides of the world meeting in a European city for this brief amount of time and everything. And, and I guess that's the part of it that could sound twee, but it, it feels really authentic. Uh, that's funny because we've been talking about authenticness in in films, isn't it? But uh, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, it is about the charisma, and they they're so so good together. They're so watchable, and you really find yourself rooting for them. And actually, their relationship does seem just like so sweet and so beautiful. And they seem like, especially like by the end, on such on the same page. And I actually haven't seen the third one of the trilogy. I've seen the second one and, and I really like that as well. Maybe this is a good time to actually watch the uh, the third one. I actually probably have ended up maybe not watching it exactly the same amount of time apart that these, that these, that these films <laughs> Nine do. years. Nine, about nine years apart each. But like, I think I do watch them a few years apart. And yeah, after talking about all this negativity just a couple of sweet young people falling in love in a beautiful place and all that lovely infatuation with one another that's exactly what i need yeah i think the script is a lot stronger than malcolm and marie as well i love the way that they wrote it because richard linklater who's the director he co-wrote it with kim krizan but then when they got ethan hawke and julie delphi on board then they they basically co-wrote the script. They kind of rewrote it together. Because yeah. they were like, well, we're, we're the couple falling in love with this film, so it yeah. kind of makes sense in us writing the dialogue because, you know, you, you want it to sort of build and build and build and you want to find out more about these people as the as the film goes on. And, and that's why I think they have that charisma because Hawke and Delphi have had that impact in the uh, pre-production process. Oh, that's really cool. I didn't know that about it. That doesn't surprise me, though. You know, that charisma uh, is uh, is so strong. And they both are, like, great actors that, that you feel that there's something that feels really genuine about the words that they're saying. It's a really convincing performance. It is a lot more likeable and a lot more memorable than, I think, a lot of chunks of, of Malcolm and Marie because the places that they move to and, and how the kind of their relationship progresses does draw you in a lot more. You don't have that yo-yo effect you know, like you do in Malcolm and Marie. Yeah, it is a much more fluid film, but as I said in the description, it's it's over multiple settings while Malcolm and yeah. Marie is restrained. So, yeah, but they're similar in they explore different parts of relationships. But it's still a minimalism, right? I mean, like, even though it's taking place over lots of different places, I mean, we're still watching almost in real time these two people talking, and that's just the concept of the film. It's just these two people talking and forming a relationship. Uh, over the course of the film, I mean that's in the, it's in the same vein, don't you think? Yeah, I I guess so. I guess maybe it's kind of easier making a film about two people falling in love and just meeting for the first time than it is having 
already an established couple kind of going over and revealing private parts of their life and information. I mean, I think Malcolm and Marie did know this stuff about each other before they start arguing about it. Yeah. But it maybe that is slightly more difficult to do. I don't know if I'd agree on that. I don't think it's any more difficult showing people falling out of love than falling in love. I think ultimately it's just more difficult making that charisma convincing. But, but, I, think I, probably, but I think it is more difficult to do it in one setting. It, it probably is. I'm not really I'm, I'm not really sure where I fall on that. Before Sunrise is much better than Malcolm Marie. Yeah, just going I don't think that's it. I think it's my favourite of all the free films we've talked about. Uh, not just because it's more positive or more like uh, a nicer view of love, but uh, it, it is genuinely like a better film than than the other two that we've talked about. You couldn't possibly know why a night like this is so important to my life right now. But it is. This is a great morning. It is a great morning. Do you think we have others like this? And now it's time for what have you been watching? And, or what have we been what watching? What have we been watching? Because, <laughs> yeah... So it's weird because sometimes it's we're watching it together, but the segment doesn't really work unless you're asking the question to someone else. So we have to have that illusion. We're trying to find a way to say we've both watched the film. This is what we think about the film. It's just the theatre, the, the beauty of the theatre of the podcast. You know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> okay, well, we've watched uh, Blade Two. We dipped into Blade Two. Dipped into Blade Two. Shoved our silver stakes into Blade 2. Nice. And, and made it explode in a glorious, fiery, gory haze. I really didn't need to watch Blade 2 uh, because I must have seen it about 100 million times. <laughs> uh, but any excuse to watch Blade 2 is great. Some of our regular listeners will remember that we talked about Blade 1 a few episodes ago. This is, of course, a sequel to Blade. So, Blade. Uh, played by Wesley Snipes, is a vampire hunter himself, half human, half vampire. Uh, he is trying to find his previously dead, now retconned as only half-dead mentor, Whistler, uh, when the vampires propose an allegiance. There's a new threat in town, a new strain of vampirism known as the Reaper strain. Uh, this creates zombie-like vampires that are resistant to all of the vampires' normal weaknesses except for sunlight. And they feed not just on humans, but vampires too. Leading them is the only self-aware Reaper, the mysterious and ultra-deadly Nomak, played by Luke Goss. Blade must agree to this uneasy allegiance with his sworn enemy and face off with this new and vicious foe. There, Jared Nomak. Born a vampire, but an anomaly like you. Unlike the rest of us, however, he feeds on not just humans, but vampires as well. Well, let me get this right. You want me to hunt them for you? When they are finished with us, who do you think they'll turn on next? Your precious humans. Not one of them will be left. A film about a pandemic? Very timely. Although one that only affects vampires. Indeed. They probably could have done quite well by social distancing if they closed down some of their nightclubs the same way that we have done in our pandemic. Might have led to, you know... Less vampires getting all reaperized or whatever. Yeah, I guess that, that probably interferes with their their own feeding schedule, so that doesn't really really work. And I think clubbing in the vampire world is much more essential and crucial it than it is in our world. Very much part of their culture. You got to live by night. You do. You do. <laughs> and, and dance to rave music and wear 
uh, 90s skiing sunglasses while you're doing it. They still could have worn masks. They could have done, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Blade 2 is just so very, very, very close to my heart. So I, so I do want to acknowledge that like slight nostalgia, but it is a film that I think runs the line between being a genuinely great film and like an over-the-top romp that you can make fun of. Uh, and I think Blade 2, you're never really sure which, which one it is it falls into. It's, it's a little bit of both. It is a little bit of both. Um, it's also a great sequel. I think it takes the original concept and kind of finds a new angle on it. I think that's what a good sequel, especially like a kind of superhero film or an action film, should do. It ups the ante because like obviously in the first one it's about vampires attacking humans and now it's about vampires attacking vampires. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, that is a great, that, you know, yeah. that, that sounds like a, almost like I'm mocking it. But no, that is a good way to upgrade on the original. It is. I, I think it helps as well that they got a new kind of creative team behind it uh, or it was you know Guillermo del Toro who's famous for Pan's Labyrinth and The Shape of Water yeah this was his like his invitation into mainstream filmmaking because before that he made Kronos Mimic and The Devil's Backbone right. which are sort of independent horror films but this was Blade 2 was I think one of the I think yeah it would have been his first film within Hollywood. So he's been, you know, he's been drafted in to make a successful sequel to a film that had done really, really well at the box office. And yeah, he passed with with flying colours. He brings that sort of grotesqueness from his independent horror films into quite a commercial vehicle, which mm-hmm. I, I really, really like about that. It, it does show why Del Toro should do something like this because uh, he is really passionate and has a real skill for horror and fantasy, and he mixes these two things together. He takes his skill set and puts it into quite different projects. You know, I, th- I think if you look at his body of work, although he's an auteur, you can see that they're all, they're all slightly different kind of ideas. He, he has a real eye for special effects. It's really visceral and gooey. All the best ones are done practically. Um, the design as well, the design of the Reapers, they're like super Nosferatus. Yeah, they are. <laughs> That's what I like to think of them as. Yeah, I actually watched a bit of a making of, and he talks about being inspired by like something quite nerdy, like anime for some of the elements, but also like old 18th century manuals on vampires. Like the idea of the Reaper's jaw and, and kind of the thing that comes out of their jaw comes actually from an, an 18th century manual on vampires that said that vampires have a kind of stinger in the, in their mouth to, to to kind of feed off people with. So that's where that came from. Um, and also like a photo of of, of someone with uh, who, who'd received a shotgun blast in the face. So there's all these like weird influences uh, that, that fall into his, his passion. But it is really passionate. There's a lot of love that goes into his the way he makes things. Do you think, though, that this film has a bit of director bias? And what I mean by director bias is that, because Guillermo del Toro is like a really celebrated filmmaker, Uh if this had been directed by someone less fashionable and less sort of in vogue with, you know, film critics and film audiences, I wonder whether this would be judged a little bit more harshly. Because we can go back to this film and say, oh, it's Guillermo del Toro, it's... It's you know it's really interesting and the design the visual effects are really good and there's some really like nice subtext in there, but if this has been directed by someone who you know hasn't gone on to win an Oscar, do you think we'd be a bit sort of more casually sort of throw them under the bus a little bit more? Absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. No way. Uh, if this was directed by Michael Bay, absolutely you... no. The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding, or the the proof is in the veiny, translucent skin of. Uh, super vampires whose jaw 
pulls apart and injects people with gooey, pussy pheromones and and screeches like a dying beast. It, whoever made this, it would still be as great because they've they've done the work to make it look really, really good. I, I don't think you could... Whoever this is directed by, I don't think you could watch this and and say like, oh, well, if it, if it wasn't made by someone that was... In, in the critics' good books, it wouldn't be as good because it, it wouldn't have the same effect. Yeah, and I, uh, another part of that I like about it is that it's such an eclectic cast. Yeah. So you've got people like Chris Christopherson and Wesley Snipes, obviously, returning from the first one. But then you've got Norman Reedus playing Scud in there, <laughs> uh, who obviously went on to do uh, like more famous things. You've got Nomak, played by... Luke which, Goss. Luke Goss. Luke is- Goss. I mean, can I talk about Nomad for a second? Because it's something I'd love to talk about. So, so Nomad is is just great. He's just this great villain, and it's Luke Goss as Nomad that, that is that is really good, great. He's like dresses like a crackhead, but he kind of fights like a battering ram mixed with Bruce Lee, and he performs it as if he's doing Shakespeare. He's been hired to be the villain in a in a schlocky superhero vampire film. But every piece of dialogue he approaches in this this grandiose manner, this kind of well-pronounced English theatre accent, it's like he, he's got this B-movie role and he said, you know, I'm going to do it like I'm doing Hamlet. I'm, 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 I'm going to just commit to this. And it's great. I'd go as far to say that Nomak is one of my favourite superhero villains. Nomak. Dave Walker. What am I to you? Is the enemy of my enemy my friend? My enemy. You know, why not take it super seriously? It just means that he stands out as this really memorable in all the gore and the quips and the testosterone and everything. He, like, is... He's, like, really memorable and 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 really great in this. Like, I just I just love Nomak. I actually, watching it again, um, I really liked Ron Perlman as Reinhardt. Yeah, he's great as well. Excellent like, villain. Like, really, like, pisses you off from the first scene that he's, he's in. Yeah. And... He he runs the line between being likable because he is he is really like he's quite tough and you can see and he's a real like survivor and everything but he also is like a piece of shit so like it's more, almost more of an antagonist to Blade than Nomak is but yeah he's great the, the whole actual the the blood pack who are the vampires that have to uh, that work with Blade in order to kill the Reapers um, are all really memorable um, and they're 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 all. They're all they're all great, and they all have like great moments, even if they're not all on screen for the whole thing because they get yeah. killed. They're, they're all quite memorable and have. Yeah, their aesthetic is is really memorable. It, it, it reminded me a little bit of the Matrix, actually. A lot of yeah, a lot of leather, uh, yeah, a lot of shades. Yeah, despite being talking about like rave clothes, like the, the the aesthetic of Blade is a lot of like black leather, PVC, yeah, trench coats, uh, like body armor. The, the <laughs> watching this time round, I'll tell you what I noticed. Uh, there are just. So many quips. I noticed this watching, uh, it, what, watching everyone's like calling each other's nicknames, like Hefe, Adolf, Shitbird, Puppy, or, or kind of throwing stupid insults at one another, like, um, like, listen, shit kicker, you're about one cunt hair away from hillbilly heaven, or something like. It's great. Or, but like, some of them are just like, uh, make, just make no sense, and are just really stupid. Like, Blade has this sort of like love interest within with a vampire princess. And Whistler says to him, like, you and Miss Mufford getting close there? And it's like, what? Like, what? what's what's this vampire lady got to do with Miss Muffet? Like, who? Miss Muffet who met a spider? Like, who's the spider? Like, what's the... 
Like, like what, what are you talking about, Whistler? Like, that doesn't make any sense at all. But I just kind of love that because it's kind of it's it's kind of a bit goofy in that way as well. But like, that's the part of it that you don't take seriously when it becomes like quite silly and like over the top and everything. Yeah, it's maybe some of the errors or mistakes in the script or the things that don't quite work. Maybe has a cult appeal about it. It does. And, like, I think there's nothing typifies that more than the action, which is glorious, like, over-the-top nonsense. Uh, There's a scene towards the end which defines the eternal 11-year-old in me. Blade fights a bunch of dudes in body armour, and every time he kicks or punches one, there's, like, a noise, like he broke every bone in their body. There's just constant, like, glass smashing and neck snapping, and all the time, like, the crystal method plays over the top of it. It's this, like, really heavy guitar and record scratches, like, wick, wick, wick. Oh, it's, I just fucking love it so much. Yeah, the pl- pace and relentlessness of the film is incredible. I think after about 25, 30 minutes, you've got, you've got like a period of that's just pure action. Yeah. And that's, I think that's really, really difficult to do. I mean, Guillermo del Toro, I don't think he's famous for being an action director, but all the action in this, or the way that he chooses to shoot it, is really, really entertaining. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it's very over the top. Uh, there's no sort of artistry in it, but it is just, yeah, really ferocious. There's kind of an artistry to it, like, but only in the argument that every action film does. Yeah. Like, yeah. like you, know, you, you know, one fight scene ends with Blade like suplexing someone like he's in WWE like it's just <laughs> I just like oh and he, like, do, he does that by by staring at Reinhardt as well he yeah, does he, a suplex he, he does a suplex while staring at Reinhardt he just kills the last guy by suplexing him into the the glass floor which just <laughs> finishes the fight with everything smashing and then he jumps right up back again with like a cartoon sound effect It's it's silly. It's silly, but it does work. It does it it does work. I think it does. It um, feels like everyone's having a really good time making this film. It does, yeah. And th- they should have made a third one with this creative team. I know. I, I think it's a shame the way that the the third one turned out because we I won't be rewatching the third one, which is dire. Um, it loses any of the interesting creative angles that either of the first two films had and uh, really botches it in the third one so I won't be watching that but so you've seen the third Blade film but not the third Sunset film <laughs> yes oh, exactly dear. <laughs> um, I know that how silly uh, Blade 2 sounds probably to an outsider but it is generally good I think it's a great ride the effects are brilliant. The script is playful. The characters are memorable. Like the soundtrack, like I say, it's this aggressive trip hop from like the early noughties. Like I, I do, as I said at the beginning, I do acknowledge that part of my love for Blade Two is kind of a nostalgia. I think it's a film that links me with a kind of happy, immature side. Uh, but the film does have a lot of brilliant craft to it. And there's some really great ideas that work really, really well in it. Yeah, I just love Blade 2, and I'm going to be watching it another 100 million times, I think, (laughs) in the rest of my life. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned there's a pandemic in the film, and, I mean, coronavirus is is horrible, and, you know, I can't wait to be out of this lockdown and everyone's vaccinated, but, you know, 
at least there isn't a virus with vampires eating other vampires, turning them into super vampires. <laughs> Maybe that's put it into perspective a little bit. Yeah, but would I be able to wear, like, black leather and go to vampire raves and suplex people into glass and stuff and have oh, while, while the Crystal Method is playing? Um, after your vaccine, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Films Are Better Than People. Be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on right now so you never miss an episode. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And don't forget to come follow us on Twitter, at Films Are Better, and like us on Facebook.com forward slash Films Are Better.